It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We've got the threat of recession either here or looming. But on the other hand, we have pretty much a fully employed economy. The consumer seems pretty decent. I like to look to the retailers to get a sense of how the consumer is doing. And we've got a great roundtable now. Poonam Goyle, analyst for e-commerce, athleisure, whatever that is, and off-price retail for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, here in the U.S. And Deb Aiken, she's a senior analyst of luxury goods and beauty, home care with Bloomberg Intelligence. She's based in London. Deb, I want to talk. start with you. Adidas, as we say it in Europe, Okay, yes. Matt. Named for Adi Dossler. Thank you very much for pronouncing it correctly. You're very, you're very welcome. Stocks off today. Uh, they had their earnings were a little disappointing. Give us the latest on Adidas. Deb Aiken. Are you there, Deb? Dear Deb, please hello. respond. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. I, I am, I am. But um, actually, that's Poonam's stock, and she's online. So. Oh, excellent. All yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just talk, or, or Deb. Let's start with you in Europe. How are things going for yeah. the consumer well, and the Gu- retailers? Well, Gucci. We can go to Gucci then. With Gucci them. had some numbers. Because, <laughs> yeah. We can. Sorry. I uh, Right. Okay. So um, if I if I focus on Kering, um, so Gucci. Kering is the is, owner of Gucci for those listeners yes. who don't know. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Kering uh, makes well over, uh, sorry, so Gucci makes well over 50% of um, sales at the Kering Group. And then you have other brands in there like San Laurent, Balenciaga. Uh, Bottega Veneta, but Gucci is by far the biggest brand and also very much so the biggest mix in terms of profitability. So um, what we saw last night um, from Paris was a 14% organic sales growth and even 23% when we add in uh, Forex gain, which looked great on the top line and was a beat. Stocks down today, um, stocks down and, and soft overall, bringing the sector down. And very much it's overshadowed by Gucci brand softness. The idea here is that there was a question in the marketplace on whether Gucci became too much fashion orientated. So the idea is really to elevate the brand to the levels that we see within some of the LVMH, Louis Vuitton and other portfolios, Christian Dior and also Hermes. Both of those have had knockout results in the last week or so. So, and Gucci's um, been a problem, not just this quarter, right? It's been a problem for a number of reporting periods. It has, and if we look um, pre-COVID, 
they went through a two-year program where they'd really reorganised. Gucci had big collaborations, lots and lots of new design, very good on ready-to-wear and footwear and others, and they were seeing 40% plus growth. So when you look at it on a three-year stack base, it's still very, very solid growth. But what we saw in the um, Q3 overall is that actually Gucci came in at 9% growth. And if I give you two comps on that, that compares against LVMH at 19% and Hermes at 24%. And the view is that it's going to be costly for them to really bring this brand back up to date. It's not passing on the price in the U.S., so Europe was huge for them because U.S. are traveling there and using dollar benefit. And then in China, it's got a new team coming in and the brand just seems to have lost its fizz. So, uh, Putin, I want to bring you in here uh, on Adidas. Uh, I see the stock trading off today. Some problems with China? Yeah, absolutely. You know, China continues to be an important area for the athleisure companies. Adidas as well, and um, it's continued to be weak. Um, there's no sign of recovery there, which is a big risk for not only Adidas, but also Nike and the other brands that have a larger presence there for growth. Um, we don't know when China will recover, but we do know that comparisons get easier as we move into the next fiscal year, and hopefully that should help at least show better numbers. But that said, with the COVID lockdowns, China still remains a big wild card for these retailers. But it's not just China that's a concern for Adidas here. I think the bigger concern really for us is the weakness that we're seeing in the Western markets with the inventory buildup. And and that's causing some major concern um, for the brand and also for rivals. By the way, are they still uh, working together with Ye, formerly known as Kanye West? He of the the anti-Semitic tweets? At the moment, the collaboration is still intact and under review. So we know that, you know, he has seen a lot of collaborations kind of go off recently, and Adidas is reviewing that. So, But so if, far, if the Germans are willing to work with him. <laughs> at the moment, it's under review, yes. <laughs> hey, Deb, talk to us about just luxury in general. By 30 seconds, so dependent upon China. But if China's not going to be China for a while during these COVID lockdowns. How big of a headwind is that for just luxury in general? I think, um, you know, if you've got the brand out in China, then there are ways for the consumer. If the brand is hot, the consumer is picking up. So for um, if we think about for Louis Vuitton, for Dior, for um, for Emma's brand overall, they were really positive on China. What they're saying, though, is that there are some lockdowns still, but where stores are open, it's back to double-digit growth. And that started up from June through July. But if I think about other areas, um, we also had last night L'Oreal, for example, right. has a big skincare market in China, and it's still not back. The market, they said, is down three for beauty. Um, they're up they're a positive eight. There's, there are still issues, and it's brand by brand. Right. Good stuff. All right. Love getting that retail roundup, if you will. Poonam Goyle, uh, she's retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Princeton, New Jersey, and Deb Aiken, retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in London, covering all things retail over there, plus the luxury sector, which it just continues to chug on. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. 
Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Think about this career. You're a principal at investment banking at Morgan Stanley. All right, pretty standard job. Head of investment banking at CIBC. It's a good standard job. That's a good gig. Yeah. But then you go, you're a portfolio manager at SAC Capital. I mean, yes. it's like the, you're a banker, but then you're a trader with Stevie Cohen. Master of who the Who does universe. that? Yeah. I mean, who does that? Well, our next guest did that. Jay Hatfield, CEO, founder, and portfolio manager, infrastructure capital management. I have no idea what this guy does for a living, but I want to. I know they got a lot of ETFs. They make ETFs. They make ETFs, and one of the ETFs is the. I don't know. They do energy stuff like that. The energy space has been so out of favor, Jay, for so long, and it's like a minuscule four percent of the S and P five hundred. When I started in the business, it was rocking energy. Uh, now it's nothing, but it's had a couple of good years here. How do you think about the energy space? Well, there's two major developments that um, have benefited the sector. The first is they started to manage their capital structures appropriately, so and also their investment. So instead of just trying to grow, they tried to generate earnings, which I learned as an undergrad is really critical. Yeah. Actual book <laughs> earnings do matter. <laughs> and if, if somebody says they don't, UCAL Davis, the by the way, undergrad, UCAL Davis. <laughs> So that, I think, is a pretty good law of investing. So he's finally started to try to generate actual profits and also dividends, which is our core of what we do. And then, unfortunately for Europe, they um, have a failed energy policy of not securing enough natural gas even before the Ukraine war, and then finally, um, after the Ukraine war, having that cut off. So. That's why U.S. energy prices are relatively resilient, even though we're in the shoulder months and global growth is obviously challenged. And that's because natural gas is trading at the oil equivalent of $180 a barrel, which draws in all other hydrocarbons into Europe. So we have the all-time record refining margins for distillate because you can ship distillate easily. So those two factors are really supporting and of course, the recovery from the pandemic, supporting the energy sector and making it um, outperform in these tough markets. Yeah. By, by the way, with your experience in the energy industry, um, which is significant, and obviously you're still you know, working with it at infrastructure, um, how likely is it that President Biden is able to actually get prices down at the pump by releasing barrels from the SPR? It helps a little bit at the margin, but you just have to think of the oil market as being global. So it's a um, hundred million barrels per day consumed. And so anything that, that comes out of the SPR is just going to operate at the margin. So it's a gigantic market and it's fungible. So all the discussions of limiting Russian oil prices and these other constraints really don't work because it's a true commodity market. And I was just wondering if it's too far upstream because we've heard um, that the, the problem really is the refining capacity yeah. and that even if you were to give them 50 million barrels of oil a day for free, it's still difficult to get that turned into gasoline and diesel. Absolutely. Well, and particularly diesel, because diesel hit $80 a barrel, which is almost unfathomable. So it's actually you get more margin than the cost of the oil. So that's trading at 180. So that really demonstrates that that's the issue is a shortage of distillate to replace the natural gas. In Europe. So, you know, when we had the this energy crisis develop with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then the reopening of the global economy, and that kind of created this energy shortage, if you will. My question to all my buddies down in Texas and Oklahoma is like, well, just start start up the refineries, 
Start mm -hmm. pumping. You know, we, we got lots of oil. We got shale. Just start refining this stuff. And if we have to liquefy it and send it to Europe, we, we can do that. But apparently, it's we don't have a lot of refining capacity out there, do we? No, we definitely don't. <clears throat> it, it hadn't been a great business for years, so there was less investment. And it doesn't really pay. Most of the new refineries are coming in, in the Middle East. So there's really been no new refineries. In fact, there was one shut down that, that blew up in Philadelphia. So you can't really just poof of a refinery out there. And it's highly imprudent because over time, the returns won't be great. So you just have to kind of mint money while the markets are good and then wait. So it's an unfortunate See, I don't dynamic. like the discipline. I mean, the energy guys are now preaching discipline to their equity shareholders and right. to their bondholders and things like that. When in reality, I need them to build more capacity. But they're not doing it. They are, in fact, disciplined with their capital. Well, you now. need them to as a consumer. Yes, uh, exactly. Not as an investor. <laughs> no, exactly. Okay. As an investor, Jay, um, where would you go right now? There are a lot of ETFs out there to play, you know, exploration, production, infrastructure, refining. Where do you think is the right place to be? Well, we always like to have, particularly in these sort of horrific markets <clears throat> with the bond market crashing every day, um, in more conservative, like if you're going to do energy, do the most conservative. So that would be pipelines. Um, definitely they yield six to eight percent. The super majors have substantial yields. And of course, we just discussed that the refiners are just printing money and trade at ridiculously low multiples and have a good dividend. So th that's the better way. We wouldn't, and there's a few of the uh, EMP companies that have like eight, nine, ten percent dividends. But you don't need to go after the most risky, small cap, gambling type. You get plenty of risk already if you're in energy, so you don't need to go small caps. So we go ultra large cap and dividends. Do is, what? Do, oh, sorry, go ahead, no, I'm just, um, you mentioned the bond market crashing every day, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not great if you're a holder, but mm -hmm. if you want return, it's not bad. Um, where's the 10-year right now? 43 4.24% uh, on the 10-year, but you're getting more on the two-year, and you know everywhere you look, yields are high. Is that bad for MLP demand? I mean, um, do those rates become comp competitive? Well, definitely in the last month, all really um, large-cap um, value dividend stocks got smashed because rates really crashed. We went from 280 to 420 in two and a half months. That's Love really the, the biggest, the biggest um, sell-off in you know, recent memory, at least. And so that really caused most of those stocks to sell off. But we don't mind that so much because when you're getting paid substantial dividends, not like 2%, but 5, 6, 7, 8, that's still a good spread. And, the, and those dividends are growing now with the pipeline companies. So they're not that rate sensitive. They're just mostly oil sensitive. Hey, Jay, uh, stick around just a moment. We have some breaking news we want to get to, but Jay Hatfield, CEO, founder, and portfolio manager, infrastructure capital advisors, you're going to stick with us. Uh, got some interesting news coming over the Bloomberg terminal. Apple, in the news again, the design chief is going to leave the company three years after replacing uh, Mr. Ivy Evans Hankey, vice president of industrial design. He used to depart. This is a big news. Ed Ludlow from Bloomberg News, he's usually based on the West Coast and has his tentacles and all things Silicon Valley, but he's here in New York here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Some pretty big news, Ed. Yeah, it's big because you go back to the history of this company in the 90s when Steve Jobs kind of came back in and made Apple what it is today. This is the first time that they won't have a kind of de facto design chief. I think what's also interesting is she's only been in the role since 2019. And, you know, to all our global audience that have an iPhone, the reason that it's sleek and gets sleeker and thinner and more beautiful each year 
well, this person has a role in it. Evans Hankey leads the team of designers that do that. And we talk a lot about the macro, how Apple performs, the high end of the market, particularly in markets like China for the middle and upper, uh, upper class income bracket. Um, but they're also working on these new products for its future, right? AR, VR headsets, an EV potentially, and she would have had a role in that. What we know, according to sources, is she told everyone she's leaving this week, but will stay for six months. And hmm. crucially, the software chief is staying. Okay. But is it, I mean, turnover at Apple doesn't seem like no. a, a typical, right? Uh, it's a, they it's just a, fired their production chief for like well, quoting a line from the movie Arthur. Okay. <laughs> I know you haven't seen, but you know, we grew yes. up with that movie. <laughs> okay. Two things. First of all, their supply chain chief did depart the company for some colorful comments that he made in a viral social media. It's a pretty direct quote. I'm surprised you remembered the movie so well. I'm just not going to say it on this program. <laughs> One high area of turnover has been the very secretive EV program. Apple's attempt to make a self-driving electric vehicle has had names from all across the industry, from legacy auto to failed names where they went to startups and it work out. Turnover, turnover. But yes, Paul, this is a company where continuity is king. Is, is the, this design chief specifically focused on... Um, you know, the iPhone or uh, would a design chief be looking at, at also the Mac, the watch, even the EV? Yeah, so she, I guess the way that I would put it is that she focused on the hardware, what it looked like, how it felt to the consumer, how it, how it is in the but hand. But not unit. just the phone, iPads, exactly, everything. Exactly. You know, that's why I flag how crucial it is that Alan Dye, who's the, the head of design for software and UX, or a user interface, is staying because the other big part of the tech I've got an iPhone in my hand, is iOS, right? The operating platform, how how that works across its different things. So the continuity in that sense. But again, she led what was a relatively big team, a few dozen very senior industrial engineers who we assume will stay in place. It's just that their chief is leaving after three years and mm. that doesn't happen. Yeah. Just looking at the stock right here, Apple stock kind of unchanged on the day up about six tenths of 1% on the news. So In an up market. In an up market, absolutely. Is there any reason, Ed, to, is there... Does this signal greater, I don't know, uncertainty, turmoil, distraction at the at what is a crucial part of the company? You know, th there's always a question every now and then to Tim Cook about succession, just as there is for any long tenured uh, executive of a company of that size. Um, it's been a rough year for Apple, right? You know, they did show nimbleness with the supply chain for a big portion of the last 18 months, but they still face head headwinds. They face the 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 headwind of a stronger dollar. Yep. They face issues of demand in China, just like everyone else. And if your top executives and talent are leaving the company for whatever reason, we actually, you know, we don't have a good read on why in this case. It's not good. Right. I mean, the the the, the one caveat really is that she's only been there for three years and we don't know exactly why she left, but she replaced a giant in the world of design. She replaced Johnny Ive, who she was did. there for two decades, who was arguably as important to Apple's success as Steve Jobs. And that's why context is king. So first of all, I think I said this, but Evans Hankey is going to stay for six months. Okay. So there's a kind of handover period. She was appointed to this role in 2019, but she had worked for Johnny Ive for years and years and years, you know, a designer in her own right. But again, uh, it's just a changing of history for Apple. The first megastar design chief, Johnny Ive, is 20 years at the company. His success is there for three years to all intents and purposes. Yep. What happens next? You know, that's always next. the question. All right, good stuff. Ed Ludlow uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ed Ludlow for Bloomberg News. Breaking down some news here. Uh, Apple design chief to leave three years 
after replacing the icon uh, Johnny Ive. All right, this is what we're going to do, folks. We're going to get a Bloomberg Business Flash, reset everything, and then we're going to come back with uh, a Jay Hatfield. And we're going to get another person coming, darkening the door as we speak, Dryden Penn, CIO of Pence Wealth Management. We're round table. It's been a good Even week. Even before today, we were up two and a third percent. Yes. And so it, that was just Monday and Tuesday. We were down Wednesday and Thursday. And now if we're up today, that just adds to it. I don't know what's going on here. Wait till the options expiration. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's bring it back. Talk some stocks in this segment. Jay Hatfield, he's still with us, CEO at Infrastructure Capital Management. And we're joined by Dryden Pence. CIO for Pence Capital Management, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We can't get a Bloomberg employee <laughs> to come into our studio today. Not on a Friday. But not you on know? A, that's the new world we live in. Dryden, what do you make of this market? It's been brutal this year. My 60-40 portfolio is in the toilet. What do you make of it? I think the market right now is, is what I call the frazzled cat. Everybody's overreacting to whatever piece of information comes out. And I think that we're it's a very emotional market, and it's trading and, and moving on the multiple. So we think it's a, a tale of two years. This year is going to be about the multiple. Next year will be about fundamentals. Uh, but I think that, that really everybody is overreacting to every piece of news that comes out. And folks need to kind of step back and have a little better perspective. Well, I mean, look, the problem is it's not just what's happening here in the U.S., right? We have more than 10% inflation in the UK. Um, Germany is looking at a situation where they may have to start rationing goods. Um, uh, it, it, are we in a different situation, Jay? Do you think the US is the cleanest dirty shirt? Um, will we avoid a major recession? Absolutely, and it's really related to the conversation we were having before about energy, is that Europe's problem is our opportunity. So we have a 80% uh, manufacturing cost advantage, not just with LNG and um, uh, refined products, but chemicals, steel, even there's a story about textiles where energy is critical. So we think that's a tailwind. And also we, the housing sector, even though it's going to decline, has limited inventory. And that's usually where you get the layoffs in the deep recession. As Fed raises rates, lay off all the construction workers, lay off auto workers. But because of the pandemic, we don't have that. So we're forecasting a mild recession here, but a deep recession in Europe. All right. So, Dryden, given that background, I mean, when I think about the, you know, the. Well, and do you agree? Yeah. Let's uh, go that way. Tend, tend, is, to, is tend to agree with the idea of a mild recession. We're probably on our way, we'll probably on our way out of it before we know we're in it. So it's more of a shallow, mild uh, recession because you can lose. Five million jobs, and you still have full employment uh, we, because right. we've got more demand for jobs than we than we actually have people. So, do I buy kind of the cyclicals that do well if we're, you know, mild recession, thinking about the other side, or do I just stick with the big growth stocks that have been so good for me since I don't know two thousand eight or something like that? Well, I think that that going into the end of the year, we're probably going to have a little bit of a rally, and that's good to kind of reposition portfolios to stronger, more earnings and fundamentals uh, getting into next year. We do see that this inflation is going to bifurcate certain sectors. Uh, it's kind of like it's Walmart and Louis Vuitton versus Macy's and uh, and maybe Nordstrom and Target. The people in the middle are actually seeing inflation go faster than wage growth. But the people on the other end, the lower end of the sector, are seeing wage growth faster than inflation. Uh, and that's been a positive that's come through this. And at the, uh, the upper end, uh, they're still you know, spending uh, prolifically because uh, they, they've got plenty of money and they're able to overcome it. You had an interesting point, Jay, on um, 
the inf- the outlook for inflation, especially as it pertains to the repos that we saw. I remember at the end of last year, we started getting insane repo numbers out of the Fed. Mm-hmm. And that just, I mean, when a trillion seemed like a lot, now we're at, what, over two trillion, right? Two point six trillion. Yeah. And it's it's sort of strangely bullish because what the Fed was doing is to keep rates within a band. So in Europe, they let rates go negative. The Fed had to neutralize all of the bond purchases they were doing versus most of 2021. And this year, they shrank the money supply by a trillion through this reverse repo. And that's why the dollar skyrocketed and why we're optimistic that inflation will drop because the leading indicators the Fed tends to ignore show that dropping commodity prices, skyrocketing mortgage rates, um, all these were caused by that reverse repo, which really shrinks the money supply. So how, I mean, how much do you think inflation is going to drop and by when? Because we're trying to figure out every single move, obviously 75 basis points this month. Um, it looks like there was a Wall Street Journal piece, which is kind of the new mouthpiece for the Fed, I guess, that <laughs> said they want to try and figure out a way to sell a 50 basis point hike, um, a smaller hike in December to the markets without you know, the stock market going crazy again. Um, will they be able to hold at the beginning of 2023? Well, we think they could hold now because you have to be patient for two reasons. One is that you do anniversary inflation. So that, that's a benefit. And two, the CPI just isn't really properly calculated. So Shelter has a six month, every six months they do a survey. So it doesn't incorporate real-time data. So you do have to be patient. So that's really the mistake we think the Fed's making is ignoring one you know, obvious point that most economists accept, which is monetary policy acts with long and variable lags. Yep, and I think there's a lot of dried in. There's a lot of folks saying that. Yeah, there's a lot of people saying the Fed should pause because we don't really know what these Fed rate increases will, in fact, have on the economy. I I think pause is the key word. One that will that will give uh, you know rise to the market probably. But I think the also also is humans don't adjust as fast as markets do. Markets adjust instantaneously, but human demand and consumer demand takes a while. And our behaviors adjust much more slowly than, than the Fed would like them to, and then certainly the market's discounting. So I think a, a pause and kind of let consumers catch up, it takes about six or eight months uh, for behaviors to begin to really change because you just have, you have commitments in what you're doing and stuff. So I it, think that, that they've got to, to think about slowing this down or they could risk breaking it. It took this market a long time to adjust to the fact that the Fed is going to actually continue to raise rates. I mean, it seemed like every excuse that this market could uh, could could get for maybe a pause is coming, maybe even a pivot is coming. They took it. Why are they so reluctant to believe that the Fed is going to do whatever it takes? Well, humans are naturally optimistic. It is our normal case that we are optimistic people. Otherwise, why would anybody get in an airplane? But I mean, the, the, the key issue here is that People are looking for the market to go up. The market's probably oversold at this point. It, if it's driven on emotion, it's driven on, on this you know, over gloomy scenario that we have. But the fundamentals are we've got more people working than we've ever had in our history. We've got more, more people are making more money than at any other time in our history. And I think that that carries things. And we're still at a low, relatively low labor force participation rate. So I think that you have some, some tailwinds to the economy that this is why I agree with the other, the other speaker here that we're, if we have a recession, it's mild. 
uh, and that we kind of power our way through it. But I think that we're overly n negative at this point, uh, you know, because we overreact to everything the Fed does, right? We overreacted to the fact now that they said, yeah, we really mean it, and people are believing it, now we're overreacting to the downside. I just kind of wonder if the idea of a Fed put is finally dead, right? I mean, anyone who's been in this market for as long as Paul has um, <laughs> just counts on the Fed to come in and save the day every time, right? Was exactly. your first job was like the day Don't after fight the big the Fed. crash in sure. 1987. Don't and, fight the Fed. Yeah. Um, so do you think the Fed put is gone? Is it, is it, is it <clears throat> taken, is it successfully taken off the, the table? I think it's been nuclear exploded. It's more like the Fed <laughs> short. Yeah. It's almost like they're working with the hedge funds to drive the market lower because they're just, they're terrible forecasters. And the other thing that I think will be discussed more is the 2% target is completely made up. <clears throat> um, it was made up by New Zealand in the 70s. 2% inflation rate. Target, yeah, the target. Yeah, okay. So it, they treat it, the Fed treats it like it was chiseled on a tablet by God <laughs> and then it descended, but it's proven to be horrendous. If you think about it really precipitated. You mean yes. targeting that? Yeah, targeting or, two. Yeah. I mean, it should be three or four. Obviously, we don't want eight or nine. That's terrible. But I think you're going to see more discussion of that because there is no empirical evidence that says two is better than three is better than four. Well, I like zero better than, better than two or three or four. <laughs> why do you want it to be? Why would we want? That's uh, what did Ronald Reagan say? It's a scarier than an armed robber, more dangerous than a murderer, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> something like that. Well, the 80s and 90s were boom times great times to be an investment banker, definitely. Yep. And <laughs> inflation man. was pretty high. It was averaged about three and a half percent. And here's the real point. Nominal wages grew about over 6%. And really middle-class people care about nominal rate wages because then they can decide what to buy. They don't want a 1% real growth rate and 0% inflation. So in some level inflation, I believe is very healthy for the economy. And you can just look historically and so the burden is on the Fed to prove this 2% number that they completely made up. If, I mean, if you, if you think about it, since 1960, over 50%, just about 50% of the time, we've had a Fed funds rate about 4%, or above 4% or, or higher. We've had an inflation rate above 3% or higher. I mean, for most of the economic True. lifespan of people that are out, out there in the, this industry, you've had numbers like this and everything's been all right. It's the fact that the last, the people in the last 10 years have, have only had a 0% interest rate and they've seen these, these low inflation numbers. So I think that we kind of have to step back and recognize that you know, the United States economy worked pretty darn well for a long period of time with a 4% Fed funds rate and, and a 3 or 4% inflation rate. And so we've, we've kind of lived through this before and we just kind of have to, you know, that's going to, it's not a, it's not, that's not abnormal. The last 15 years have been abnormal. We're getting back to what a normal uh, relationship should be. Dryden, when you talk to your clients, do they want you taking risk now? Do they want to say, my bonds are wiped out, my stocks are wiped out, but now it's time to get in or are they shell-shocked? I, I, I think everybody is a little shell-shocked, but most importantly, what people want to know, what clients want to know is, when does it end? Okay. You, you can, you can really endure, <laughs> in, endure a lot of pain if you know when it's going to end. And so we talk about it's going to end when three Ps happen. You, have, you, you probably have a pause. Uh, you have peak inflation, you have a pause from the Fed, or you end up with peace in Ukraine, which kind of you know, triggered a lot of these things. So we're looking for language around at least two of those three Ps. And then we have an election coming up, and historically, after, you, you see about an 8% rise in the market after the midterms, regardless of the results. It's just that you, know, you get some certainty in it, and, and so we look to that to the end of the year. But I think what, what retail 
clients are really wanting to hear from us is when does the pain end? How soon? How long must I endure this? Because most of them have been around long enough know you get through it. I, I wanted to ask about your service because you're an economist and you're a markets guy. Um, you went to Harvard, MIT, but I see that you also served in the U.S. Army, got a commendation medal uh, with a V for valor in combat, earned a bronze star, a Knowlton Award. I don't even know what that is, but... Um, Tell us about that, because I think it's fascinating, and obviously we appreciate it. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm a retired full colonel, and I, uh, my expertise was psychological warfare. So, uh, that doesn't this sound is, nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they now call it information operations, ah, but, what, okay. but what, the, what it really, to give it a nicer name, but what it really was psychological warfare. And, and so in, in what we do as an investor, as, we, as you've heard from my comments, we really think about human behavior. Nobody makes a, you know, human behavior drives consumption. Nobody makes a penny until someone decides to buy. So if you can try to get forward in what people are thinking, what, they, what their fundamental desires are, you can be predictive about what they're gonna buy and who they're gonna buy it from. So we kind of meld these two things together. And it's been very interesting with the clients because you know now that we have a war going on uh, and yep. different kind of perspective of things like that, those, those are things that a lot of people wanna talk about and how do, how do these things relate, so. Well, thank you very much for your service. Yep, good well, stuff. Thank you for paying your taxes. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. no I'm, I'm serious. You know, if no one has ever thanked you for paying your taxes, I'm doing it right now because you need to remember you buy body armor that keeps soldiers safe and you save lives. So when people get mad about paying their taxes, just please remember that you actually are buying body armor that saves yep. soldiers' lives. And I think so I'd rather have you business. in a foxhole than Matt. Just saying right here. So <laughs> I think better, our country, I'll be better paying for it. I think yeah. our country's all the better for it. All right, good stuff. Dryden Pence, uh, Chief Investment Officer, Pence Capital Management. Jay Hatfield, CEO of Infrastructure Capital Management. Thank you, gentlemen, for doing a quick roundtable here on kind of what's going on in the markets out there. Again, we have some green on the screen right now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about Twitter. Let's talk about Snap. I mean, Snap just got crushed today down, you know, 29%. Um, is that, what's it mean for all these social media Dude, companies? I heard the PM yesterday. During the market, say, I'm going to buy Snap because it can't go any lower. Oh, that's <laughs> not good. Whoops. All right, let's check out with Mandeep Singh. He's our senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Mandeep, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate you phoning it in, which we notated. Uh, Snap, what's the story there? Well, so as Matt was saying, uh, you know, everyone thought the valuation has dropped, uh, you know, down 80%. Guess what? Uh, you know, they came out with, another bad print. And I would say it was a mixed report. The user base continues to hold steady, but you know they didn't give any guidance. They said the engagement in the US declined 5% and they didn't come out clean in terms of why that's happening, whether it's because of competition from TikTok or just you know people uh, traveling more right, or that, anything that, like I that. I wanna go to the TikTok mm -hmm. issue, Mandy. Frame that yeah. out for me. I'm not a TikToker, Matt, very well might be but no man that is no no big and 
what is it? How who does it really take compete with? Who does it? Is it gigantic, or do Paul and I just think it's gigantic because right. we are too old to understand? Well, it's uh, really uh, big now in terms of the time spent. Not as much in terms of the advertising revenue, although it is uh, the fastest growing advertising company. But right now, it's taking uh, a lion's share in terms of the time spent when it comes to the 10 to 25-year-olds. I think uh, they are the predominant user base, although uh, I, I think- Are they, they all using it? Good. Is it like every 20-year-old kid has TikTok? On, on yes. Her At or this his point, phone? you can assume, yeah, yeah, they they have a daily active user base of over 100 million in the U.S. So, yes, I, I would say at this point, everybody in that demographic is using TikTok. Do, and we, have using, of, do we have a sense of uh -huh. kind of what their advertising revenue is? I mean, is it really a competitor for those ad dollars out there? Absolutely. I mean, uh, based on our work, it's uh, over $10 billion Whoa. and growing at a very healthy 60-70% clip. So yes, it surpassed Snap, Pinterest, Twitter, everyone already. It's giving Instagram a tough time in terms of, you know, just the time spent. And as I said, uh, they have a very new approach in terms of how they, uh, you know, show content to the users. It's more AI driven and it's more videos. And that's what uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, said. They're going to make this big pivot to videos and reels and really change to more AI-driven feed as opposed to user-driven feed, which has always been the case with you know uh, Facebook and Instagram. How much room is there for all this stuff in the market, Mandeep? I mean, if you got Twitter, uh, Snap, Pinterest, um, uh, TikTok, Facebook. I mean, how much room is there for one 20 year old kid to um, how many apps can you can you be on and, and addicted to and spending a half hour or an hour a day on? No, you're absolutely right that in the end, you know, you're competing for that two to three hours of time that every consumer can spend max on these apps, whether it's and you can, you know, even bring in Netflix as well, you know, like this is all entertainment. And so if somebody is spending more time on Netflix or TikTok, then it's taking time away from Facebook and Instagram, which is the challenge that all consumer Internet companies have is eyeballs. And how do I make sure that consumers are using my platform? And eventually I'll monetize it. In the case of Twitter, that eventually has been too long. Uh, but I, I think for other platforms, the hope is like Roblox is another example. You know, They are taking a good amount of share when it comes to the nine to 13 year old demographic. And so everyone is vying for that uh, consumer time spent on their platform. And uh, the hope is you, know, you will monetize it eventually. So, Mandeep, we are either in or heading into a recession. Uh, that's generally not good for advertising spending. What are the digital media companies saying about how they expect to perform in a recession? Well, so that's why you saw a snap. Uh, not giving guidance last night is because they said brand advertising. We don't know if advertisers really want to spend on brand advertising. They're still spending on direct response and performance advertising, which is your search and, you know, uh, direct app download type of advertising, but they're not spending as much on brand. On the other hand, the ad agencies like Omnicon and Publicis, their results have kind of been stable. So from my standpoint, uh, the fact that ad agencies have done well this quarter uh, shows to me that uh, Apple's privacy changes have had some sort of an impact 
in terms of social media targeting and which is why the advertisers are a little reluctant to allocate those brand ad dollars on social media right now compared to the, uh, what the ad agencies are doing. By the way, how big a deal is it that Apple is losing an industrial design chief? Evans Hankey going to leave. Um, you know, this was uh, she was the replacement for Johnny Ive, like one of the most iconic, I guess, uh, design chiefs of the digital age. So it couldn't have been easy, uh, difficult shoes to fill, let's say. But how big of a deal is it that she's going to leave? I mean, attrition is always, you know, a big deal for any tech company. Snapchat also has had have a fair amount of attrition. You know, a couple of the key executives left, uh, left for Netflix. And, uh, you know, they'll be building their ad business for Netflix. So anytime you see an executive departure, especially, you know, in the uh, management ranks, yes, it can be a big deal. But in the case of Apple, you know, they still can make any changes to the platform. And if they want to uh, become a big player in the ad space, they could potentially do that. I mean, some people are calling that, you know, they are the biggest beneficiaries of the privacy changes they've made because a lot of those ad dollars could flow to Apple. And uh, so I, I, I think Apple's advantage is they have got so many opportunities. They could come up with, you know, a mixed reality headset next year, and that could open up a lot of opportunities. So I, I don't think that's it's going to change anything in terms of how uh, people perceive Apple. Uh, I think the biggest risk for them is the China aspect, and, and that uh, I, I think is the one that which uh, is which is investors which is most. what that they uh, can't get the right chips or that they can't get the production they need there. The production. Uh, yeah. I mean, ninety-eight percent of uh, their uh, you know uh, everything gear uh, when it comes to phones or AirPods or uh, they're uh, assembled in China. So, so Mandeep, I mean, all the big name tech stocks that you cover, Anurag Rana covers. I mean, these have been the darlings. I mean, I could have been an analyst covering these things and made money. I mean, so you know, I, I, I hate to give you any credit for this because they all went up. But has it changed now? Are, are investors like, uh, they're not, I don't have to own these well, certainly names. Certainly not this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, has so that really I, changed? I would say consumer internet always has a small life in terms of, you know, who stays at the top. And when you think about, you know, adverti digital advertising being a duopoly first with Alphabet and Meta, then Amazon being that third player. Now I think it's going to get even more fragmented. Every company out there is looking to become an ad network. Even, you know, Kroger and Albertson merger could be uh, or could open up a new platform around ads that retailers could use to show digital ads. So I, I think you're going to see more fragmentation on the ad side because, you know, the likes of Walmart, Target, they're already uh, showing display ads on their platform. They have a sizable e-commerce business and uh, more and more ad dollars, I think, are going to spread out as opposed to, you know, only three companies controlling all the digital ad platforms. And I think Apple has really... Uh, kind of made that level playing field now that no one has an undue advantage in terms of the data that but, they're gathering or the targeting they have. But Apple doesn't get any ad dollars, do they? I mean, where could they? they I guess they Apple do. TV. They, no, Apple has about a two to three billion dollar digital ad business right now. They show you ads when it comes to searches on the App Store. Hey, man, uh, Matt's all set to join the metaverse. I'm a little bit more skeptical. I'm in. As soon as some, as soon as some 12 year old builds the metaverse on Roblox, you're in. I'm playing. Yeah. So, what's the market really feel about this, Mandeep? When you talk to institutional investors, is this something that Facebook should be doing? 
Well, so Facebook is in a very tough spot because they're losing engagement and they have this hundred billion dollar plus business that's gonna that's moving away from them because they are losing engagement. So Metaverse is their play to keep consumers on their platform. And I don't know if they should be doing their own hardware, but really they don't want to depend on an Apple or an Alphabet controlling the platform. So that is why Mark Zuckerberg is so passionate. Whether it will be successful, time will tell. I, I think hardware is a challenge for any company that's doing it for the first time. All right, Mandeep, great stuff as always. That's what I love about Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence. You can talk anything technology, yeah. hardware, software, the internet, all that stuff. Uh, he knows it. Matt, we talk a lot about electric vehicles here, and I know you're, you know, obviously you're the gearhead uh, in the studio here, but when you talk electric vehicles, don't we have to talk about batteries i mean isn't that like the key 100 thing that you have to have a call on you have to have a good sense of dr kang sun joins us a ceo of amprius uh amprius is a new york stock exchange listed company ampx is the symbol for, put into your bloomberg terminal uh dr sun thanks so much for joining us here i'd love to get just you give us an uh, kind of a real overview of what amprius is what you do how you uh participate in this electric vehicle revolution that's taking place. Paul, thanks for having me. Uh, MPS is a developer and a manufacturer of high energy density and a high power density lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, MPS batteries use uh, high capacity silicon as an anode that has a 10 times capacity than graphite anode that the industry is currently using. So the future mobility is heavily depends on battery performance in safety, energy, power, charging time, and the operating temperatures. Today, Amprius batteries lead the performance in all those properties. So are we going to see, you know, in the future when um, everyone's making and buying and driving electric vehicles, um, is one, say, 200 kilowatt hour battery uh, going to be better or different than another 200 kilowatt hour battery? Yes, yeah, it will. Depends on the battery material uh, components. Uh, they will have uh, offer different performance. Uh, today, Amperes battery have been used in aviation industry. We actually power many flying devices today in commercial market. So, but what what what's going to make it better? Um, do you try and make batteries that are smaller? Do you want to make batteries that are lighter? Do you want to make batteries that charge faster? Do you want to make batteries that last longer? What's What are the main um, advantages that you're after? Yeah, we have this called silicon nanowire anode batteries. As I mentioned earlier, silicon has a 10 times higher energy density than the graphite, which the industry is currently using. So uh, our battery offer much higher energy density. We offer energy, uh, energy density uh, almost twice uh, higher than the current commercial available commercial batteries. Yeah, so uh, we double the travel time and the mission time uh, uh, today. So who are your customers? Who are your biggest customers today and, and kind of where do you think the opportunities are going forward? Yeah, we are focused on aviation market. Our customers, including Airbus, Heladan Fleur, uh, those are uh, uh, the company make uh, uh, the flying devices. 
uh, in the future, once our uh, large scale capacity available, we like to explore other market applications, including EV. All right, Dr. Kang Sung, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Kang Sung, CEO of Amprius, again, the New York Stock Exchange traded uh, company, AMPX is the symbol. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.